This is On Call with Dr. Dave, and today I have Dan on call. So Dan, you're a nurse, and we were just speaking just barely. You do some uh, managing as well on the nursing side, and you've also worked mm -hmm. as a nurse. But this is the first time on a podcast where I'm talking to somebody where I haven't met you before. So this is this is a first. I've just reached out to people I've known, so I know a lot about them and what they do. And you're the first person where it's just like, I don't know you, and I don't know what you do. So this is kind of exciting for me just to sit back and get to know somebody new and to hear your stories. Yeah. So I guess I'll just introduce myself and what got me into nursing. I was raised by a physician who was raised by a physician. So <laughs> there was a lot of expectation there for me to follow that same path. Fortunately, I got a lot of the um, fear of medicine, blood and guts off the table <laughs> at a young age. I was afraid of literally everything. Um, my dad was a plastics who do a lot of reconstruction in the ER after people had made stupid mistakes with, you know, fireworks or their lawnmower or something like that. So I always thought, you know, I'm going to go in, do plastics. And when it came down to um, shadowing, actually seeing what they do day in, day out, it wasn't where my passion lied at all. I really enjoyed the interaction with the patients. I really enjoyed more of that side of things. And so I started to look more into nursing. And then kind of simultaneously with that, my uh, grandpa got diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia. And I was the college age kid who could move in and help them with their day in, day out. And I really fell in love with um, working with people with neuro impairment. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of threw me on the path to like, okay, yeah, I think I want to do nursing. I want to be more interactive with um, patients continuously throughout the day and do kind of that bedside um, part of the equation. So I started in on nursing with the intention. I want to work at the bedside for a little while, and then I want to go on and become a nurse practitioner. Um, I really liked the psych component of healthcare. Um, and when I got into the hospital, I suddenly realized after a few of my patients crashed that I liked critical medicine. And so surprise again, I pivoted <laughs> and ended up in the ICU. Didn't think I would last there very long because it's a pretty tragic place to work. There's a lot of really sad stuff you see every day. But for whatever reason, I just felt a lot of passion about what I was doing there and eventually ended up in this leadership position. I did uh, about five years as a assistant manager, and then about a year ago, I became the manager. And what kind of setting is this? Is this inpatient in a hospital, or is this yeah. a... Okay. So I work in a, a neurocritical care ICU. So I work with neurosurgery and neurology patients. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's my backstory. <laughs> <laughs> so when you think back about the things you've seen and done as a nurse, even from getting into nursing, working with patients, or even just as a manager, what kind of sticks mm -hmm. out in some of the more interesting stories or things that you've seen? So I was thinking about it when you reached out um, and you said, what, what's like a funny story you would tell at a party? And I was like, 
Well, I've worked in an ICU my whole career, pretty much. I only was in acute care for a short amount of time, and there's not a lot of funny stuff that happens there. There's some (laughs) stuff that you start to find funny over your time working in healthcare, and then I tell people outside of healthcare, like, what about this funny story? And they look at you like you're crazy. (laughs) So I'm not going to share those stories because you kind of adapt to your environment, I suppose. But one story that happened... um, that stands out and people tend to like is uh, I was working with this patient who had uh, had a interparenchymal bleed, like a small um, brain bleed after they had really high blood pressure from drug use and they had chronic drug use. Uh, And they'd been admitted to a rural hospital where they did a scan and found this brain bleed. And the patient had been um, pretty uncooperative because they were on drugs and they Gave, they put a breathing tube in and started sedating the patient and then sent them our way. Um, so a lot of times when they come into the ICU setting in a neuro ICU, the first thing we need to do is figure out where they are neurologically. So we'll lighten up that sedation and see how interactive they are. Um, she ended up needing to be uh, under. I, I was there the night she admitted. And then um, it's about 24 hours later when I was there, probably when the you know, drugs borne off and she'd improved it a little bit enough that there's like, okay, I think she can protect her airway. Now let's take this breathing tube out. And a lot of times in the ICU neuro ICU setting, when you take out the breathing tube, the patient's still pretty out of it. They're pretty mm-hmm. zonked. Um, and by the time they become interactive, it's a lot of times after they leave the ICU, but this particular patient is, um, they withdrew the breathing tube and the patient takes their first breath and everybody's like encouraging, you know, breathe, breathe, breathe. She just looks around the room and just says, you know, I knew I shouldn't have hit that crack pipe. (laughs) We just started dying laughing. Like most time patients can't even say their name when they hit the breathing tube. So she had apparently recalled the situation that put her in the, in the bed. And it sounds like she learned a good lesson from it too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good take home for everybody in the room too. Don't smoke crack. <laughs> yeah, I've spent a lot of time in the ICU. I'm, I'm kind of in and out, but you're right. This it's not a, a situation rife with humor. There's not a lot no. of good times in the ICU, and usually by the time they're even interacting and you can have good conversations with them, at that point they're ready to get transferred to the floor because they don't need the ICU services anymore. So you guys probably just meet them very briefly and then Mm -hmm. they leave. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I read over a lot of patient surveys and try to surmise like, what can we do better to better cater to the patients and their families? And a lot of times their families are the ones filling out the survey. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the time, even the families are like, don't remember much about the ICU. It's just too, you know, finding out your loved one has suddenly and working in a trauma accepting ICU. Um, a lot of times it's not like, Oh, this is a problem that progressed over time. This is something that, you know, I was talking to this person a couple hours ago and now they're very close to death. So it's not typically a setting where there's a lot of humorous interaction and there's just a lot of kind of that grim chaotic, but it also gives you a, really unique opportunity to really connect with people, especially in the nursing role. You can really improve people's days by 
caring about what you're doing and being there for them in that, that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you said, you know, when your dad's a physician and you looked at how much time he spends with patients, it's most of the time we spend with patients It's a quick visit before surgery and then it's surgery and they're asleep. And then there's a quick post mm-hmm. visit. So you're right. We don't spend as much time with those patients uh, as a nurse does, especially in a hospital setting, you know, in our clinic, yeah. that's, but in a hospital setting, the person that's the, with the patient the most is the nurse. And also you, especially in the ICU, you are also managing those, those family members. You're doing mm-hmm. everything you need to for that patient, all the IVs, all the medications, all the checks, all the neuro checks, all of everything that goes into it. And you guys know those family members better than anybody. And yeah. I go in, it, you know, when I need to talk to a family member, it takes two seconds for the nurse to say, oh, the mom's this person, the dad's this person, this is the person that's available at this time. Oh, it's now 2.30 in the afternoon, so the dad's going to be here. Why don't you call the mom? Actually, no, the mom's going to be out. You should talk to the sister. You, mm-hmm. as the nurse, know that whole family, names, sometimes phone numbers off the top of your head because you've called them so many times. I'm always so impressed with how in, like involved you are with not just the patient, but the family members as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was saying, it's uh, it's not an environment that sounds like a lot of fun on paper, or, but it, it's a really meaningful place to be for sure. Yeah. I've gotten more hugs in the ICU than anywhere else in my career. Just yeah. the, when you're there and everybody's scared and sad. And when you do anything that can help their loved one, they just, they're emotional and just grab you and just wrap you in a hug anytime you give them any good news. And that, that mm-hmm. doesn't happen on any other floor or after most of my surgeries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice for those reasons. Mm-hmm. There's a, another story I could think of that's um, more of an impressive um, story that um, happened pretty early on in my ICU career. Um, we were getting this patient and we just had report that the, person was driving down the road and the car in front of them, the, a piece of rebar had fallen off the back of a truck and gone directly through the windshield into this patient's forehead. And the physician who was covering the floor that night for neurosurgery came by and just said, you know, make sure we involve donor services early, early on. And it sounds like we're going to get this patient to the floor. Like there, but chance of survival are not high in this scenario. Mm-hmm. And they got them in and um, the piece of rebar had penetrated through their forehead and into their brain. Um, and they immediately went in and extracted it. We got them in the ICU and I was starting to do all the stuff we do when we're caring for a patient. And I went to the doctor and said, do you think we should just go ahead and put in a feeding tube for medications and food. This seems like it's going to be a patient who will be here for long enough that, you know, when you have a breathing tube, you require your food to go through a feeding tube if you can't eat. And he's like, yeah, go ahead. And this is probably three, four hours after they admitted post getting the washout in the operating room. And I went to put the feeding tube in and um, as soon as it hit the back of their nasopharynx, it's just a really stimulating spot for a feeding tube to hit right at the back of your nose. The patient sat up in the bed and I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And as soon as they sat up, I, you know, as a nurse, you just fall right into your assessment protocols. And I was like, give me thumbs up. And the 
patient gave me thumbs up and wow. was like, okay, you're in the hospital. We're going to, uh, I'm like, I'm going to turn up your sedation just a little bit right now because they were kind of freaking out and, you know, trying to pull at things and, um, got the wife to the bedside and we got the breathing tube out that night and the rebar had only penetrated into their frontal, frontal lobe of the patient's brain. And that's an area of the brain that's not super involved with, um, survival. It's more of like mood and what determines how you react to certain situations. So the patient still required kind of a long hospital course and neuro rehabilitation, but they were totally fine and kind of surprised us all. And it was almost like Lazarus popping up out of the bed in there. <laughs> That's the last patient you expected to just open his eyes and uh, start talking to you or at least giving you those thumbs up. That's amazing. Yeah, that was a hug moment for sure. The wife was very, very excited. She had explained to me that she had asked to borrow his truck and if he had been, and he was sitting in a sedan. And so she had all this guilt thinking, oh, if he had just been in the truck, that wouldn't have hit him in the head because he would have been higher up. And, mm. you know, so she's had all this, you notice people internalize all this guilt and all the what ifs in these sorts of situations. So when he suddenly did much better than we were thinking he was going to do, it was pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. The guilt thing is interesting because I, I see that as well, even when it's something that the patient did that directly cause their own injury or trauma and they feel a lot of shame and guilt about it. And I just say, you know, like I've talked to thousands of patients that just narrowly missed having your exact same situation. Most of us just get lucky, you know, through life. We don't crash our car. We don't get hit with a firework. Something, somebody's mowing a lawn and a rock shoots out and hits you right on the cheek and you think, oh, wow, that was close. So even the people that have a lot of guilt about I did this and now I have this injury, you know, we're just all human. Most of us are only not in the hospital just by just the smallest margin. Sometimes we don't even realize how lucky we are. Yeah. I was ice climbing last weekend and decided to put on eye protection about halfway through the day. And right after that, I swung into the ice and it flipped out and broke on the glasses I was wearing and kind of cut my nose a little bit. I was like, man, this is a good idea to put these glasses on. So I, I might've been a patient of yours if I hadn't done that. Exactly. And so many people have the safety glasses and then they get frustrated because something's not working right. And they take them off right before they give it one last turn and then a crank and then they (laughs) damn hurt themselves. So it's just, it's part of being human. And luckily, you know, if you can, if you can make it through it, you just learn a good lesson and you move on with life. Did you ever find out, did that guy's personality change much or did you kind of lose contact after he left the the ICU? So he um, left the ICU and a lot of times patients will walk back onto the ICU on the, one of the last days before they discharge from rehabilitation because we have a neurospecific rehab in the center that I work in. So the hospital is able to see a lot of these patients through their whole care course. So fortunately, I was there. when he came back and it was pretty interesting because he came up and, you know, I don't know for sure, but he, because he was on a fair amount of sedation, but he's like, I just, I was trying to find you particularly because I heard you there comforting my wife and my family and my mom. And I uh, like remember coming like into the room and, but to the impulsiveness was very apparent in the way he was Mm -hmm. interacting. He was like, 
really leaned in really forward and about, you know, less than two seconds after he finished the thing he wanted to say, he just turned around and started walking away at a very <laughs> brisk pace. And his wife's like, Oh, we're working on this and started hurrying after him. And then I wish I could know how he's doing today, but um, based on him being there within about a month, I'm sure he's doing much better. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point too, that he was aware of a lot of things, what you were saying, how you were interacting with his family. So even when people, when I go into the ICU and somebody's intubated and everybody's like, oh, he hasn't said or done anything for weeks. And I still go in, I introduce myself by name. I try to use mm-hmm. the name. I explain what I'm doing because I, you, you never know what they're aware of or what they're not aware of. It's not like general anesthesia where they're tuned off to the world. They're just sedated enough to keep them from pulling out tubes. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And I sometimes, like I said, I, I'm kind of in and out. I don't get to follow these patients. I kind of go in do my thing and leave. And I have no idea most of the time if they heard me, if they didn't hear me. A lot of times I don't even know if they ever make it out of the hospital. But on the off chance, they are aware. And that is something that's happening. I know it must be such a scary situation to not know what's happening. And so many things are happening to you. So I try to take a step back and say, just in case this person's aware, they need to know my name, what I'm doing. And I try to walk them through what's happening. And I don't know, like I said, like, I don't know if it matters most of the time, but maybe for the few times it does matter. It's, it's worth doing that for everybody. Yeah. They might just wake up right that moment. Yeah. Right then. See, you don't know. They say uh, hearing's the last sense to go to, so that's something we always try to keep in mind in the ICU. I continue to interact no matter it. It feels way more natural to to not just grab somebody who's sedated and start moving them around, or you know, mm-hmm. push a medication down their tube or put it through their IV and just walk. You know, like it feels very inhuman, and so sometimes people will like kind of look at you weird because I'm like all right, you know, Mr. Johnson, mm-hmm. putting in this medication, this is what this medication does. And this person's been out of it for several days and people, it's not the same way everybody interacts, but I, I like to think that it's appreciated if the person can hear it. And then the family, I think likes that too, to mm-hmm. know that you're providing all the same steps you would if the patient was awake or not. Yeah. So. Yeah, especially with the family, it's their loved one. They want to see all of that. They want to know what's happening. And I found it's also useful for the family members in the room because they don't know what I'm doing either. All of a sudden I'm putting in like medications. I'm doing things. I'm standing different directions. They want to know that I'm trying to be gentle. They want to know the steps I'm taking. So I, I think we do so many things in medicine that we just either assume don't matter or it's just routine but patients don't know what's going on. Family members don't go, know what's going on. So I try, if anything, I feel like I kind of over-explain what I'm doing to people, but I'd much rather have that than somebody just uncertain or scared because they don't know what I'm doing for them. For sure. Now, how has your role changed being in the manager side of things? That's a unique portion in medicine. A lot of us are like directly with patient care when you're yeah. managing the other nurses and trying to take care of ceilings falling in. Do you get as much time with the patients or is it helping guide nurses and like how much do you do with their mental well-being? I'm, I'm kind of curious with the stress of having the job and the stress of what a nurse goes through, how much of your job is also just kind of de- decompressing with the nurse that you know had a tough day? 
a lot of it is focused on that. Fortunately, the institution I work for is pretty focused on um, ensuring that people's, you know, mental well-being is in check, especially through COVID. The ICU I worked on became a COVID expansion, and we had a lot of growing pains um, figuring out that the nurses delivering the care, well, my perspective at the bedside knew that, but it's cool to see administration start to notice that mm -hmm. we're able to focus on um, real-time, you know, um, decompression with bedside nurses going through these traumatic events, like um, doing a full rundown of any emergent situation after it happens and stuff like that is really important for the way people process things because the majority of people who work in the ICU setting will displace it symptoms of PTSD pretty readily after okay. a pretty short amount of time. Um, so my job in leadership initially, um, I would spend, um, I would still work at the bedside one or two shifts a week. Um, and then my other shifts, I would manage the schedule for nursing. And then I kind of built this mentorship program because in critical care, we used to have a model where you would start your career as a nurse in an acute care setting or in a skilled nursing setting. And then eventually after a year or two experience, start to work in an ICU setting. Um, with the amount of turnover that hospitals have seen, we've had to pivot to a model where we bring new grad nurses into the ICU mm -hmm. um, right out of school. And so it takes a good year to train them up to be able to take the more critical patients that we have in the ICU. So I was in the leader role when that transition was happening. So we developed a mentorship program where we have these nurse mentors that are regularly meeting in with people and we cater the assignments to these nurses who have not been there for very long so that they work through this kind of ladder of um, patients that aren't quite as sick to the more critical patients. And, mm -hmm. Um, at each step, they have to graduate through this mentorship program, um, and prove that they're competent in these certain aspects. So that part of it was pretty interesting because I really do have quite a, a lot of passion for the teaching part of the job, um, which is, I think what lent, uh, ended me up in the leadership role is, um, I pivoted into that staff support role pretty well, um, through that experience. And my day in, day out doesn't involve as much time at the bedside, which is pretty unfortunate because that's where a lot of my passion still lies. And I'll just go out and just try to find a call light that's up or, you know, see if somebody's looks like they're struggling in a room and go in and offer an extra set of hands. And so I still get the time at the bedside, but I don't do the 12 hours at the bedside anymore with patients day in, day out, which... It's good in some ways because that, you know, that constant PTSD part of it, I'm not as involved in. Um, but at the same time, it's harder for me to find a lot of passion in, you know, interviewing and creating schedules. And, but yeah, I'm able to go and a lot of times I just walk nurse to nurse around the unit and follow up on how they're doing, how things are going with them. And that part of it, I really like. Yeah. I think it's more important that we realize, I don't think we used to do that very often. It was just, you show up, you work, and then you go home. Even mm -hmm. me starting this podcast in a way was to reconnect with what makes medicine special. Those patient encounters, those stories, 
because I get bogged down with all of the just, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but just paperwork's a slog and prior authorizations and insurance companies and the battles. And then you have just the day-to-day stuff running a business too, like bills needing to get paid, staffing issues, people showing up on time or late or calling in sick and you run into all of that. So there's so little time directly spent doing what I love to do, which is interacting with the patient and then being able to do surgery for them. And not enough of my time is built around that. So I've, I've loved having the conversations with people because it just reminds me of what we do and why we do it. Just even hear you saying you grew up in a medical family, but that you found your way into nursing because that's where you felt the most impact and the most interaction with people. And that's what drove you to do this. So I, I love that because that's what I hear over and over again. I don't, I've never talked to anybody yet where it's just like, yeah, I went into it because it pays well. <laughs> yeah. And that's not what gets us interested to begin with. And it's, it's interesting that we spend so much time on, you know, it is important to get paid or it's important to get those things through insurance. And we do need to have the staffing conversations, but that's not what got us here or keeps us here. No. Yeah. Managing the ICU's budget is not what I just wake up (laughs) (laughs) elated to do every morning. No. (laughs) Not passionate about those spreadsheets, huh? (laughs) No, no. And I think that's a really unique aspect in medicine. When I talk to people in different career fields, I struggle to see, I'm like, man, I don't love going to work every day, but I know what I'm doing makes a difference for people when I'm there doing it in those parts of it um, that are those strong interactions that we had talked about. And it's just, for me, so meaningful to have a career where I'm able to do that and be there for people in that setting. So yeah. Well, I can, I can tell that means a lot to you as well. And I think that's important. And anytime anybody asks me if they should go into medicine, I just ask them if they want to help people and if they really want a job where they know they're helping people, then yes, it's worth it. If it's for any other reason, you won't last very long. No. Yeah. You weed people out really quickly. I have quite a few family members who, especially when I was working the three 12 hour shifts and had, you know, four or five days off every week be like, I want to go into nursing because I'd be out skiing on all my days <laughs> off or whatever. I'd be like, all right, first you got to be a nurse assistant and come on into the ICU and bust the time bill yep. <laughs> for a couple of weeks and be like, I think I want to be an accountant. <laughs> yep. That's not, it's not the easiest way to have ski vacations. No, no. <laughs> especially now that I picked leadership for some reason. So yeah, longer, probably longer hours and more consistent. You're probably there. You're, there's no like three days on five days off or four days off. It's most days yeah. you probably are busy and getting called in probably yeah, 24, seven five days a week, but if not all seven days a week, you're probably getting phone calls. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Any other stories you want to share with us? I could share one more. It's, okay. um, one that's kind of more of a little bit of a heart wrencher. I was taking care of this patient and I was working uh, a string of straight night shifts. I think I was doing five or six night shifts in a row. And early on in that string of shifts, we admitted a patient who had a basilar artery infarction. So they 
um, had developed a blood clot in a part of their brain um, that's really what I refer to as high-priced real estate. Like, it's not a part of the brain you want to have a lack of blood flow going because you have a lot of higher function that lives beyond your basilar artery. Um, and the condition that people end up in when the basilar artery goes out is called locked-in syndrome, um, where these patients are 100% conscious and aware of everything that's going on, but the only thing that they can do is blink their eyes. They can't move anything. They're 100% paralyzed. Um, and so I was taking care of this patient and we were doing everything we could to, um, they tried to retrieve the clot in interventional radiology and that failed. Um, but the patient, it had not yet completely occluded this uh, vessel. So the patient was still interactive and was able to give their um, final you know, cares and wishes if they ended up in this situation that they were locked in would they want to continue treatment and stuff like that? So not often are we able to have those conversations with patients. Um, so it, it was fortunate that he was able to say what he wanted. And after running them on blood thinners and everything, um, by one of the last nights in the string of shifts, he had unfortunately become completely locked in. Um, and so we were going through the process of withdrawing care from the patient because he had expressed that he wouldn't want to live in a paralyzed state for the rest of his life in a bed dependent on a ventilator. And he had like not a very old family. And so we were all really struggling as the care team to watch these interactions as the family said goodbye. And I was standing in the hallway, um, looking at the patient monitor, not really sure what to do. And um, one of the older family members leaned over to me um, and it was the patient's mom. And she said, she was looking up at the monitor and the, you know, the vital signs were starting to decrease the heart rate and the oxygenation. And she just looked at me and said, is that my son in there? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, no parent should ever have to watch their kid die. And I was like, you know, I totally agree. And I just hugged her and sat there with her for a minute. And then after the uh, individual had passed away and I was interacting with the family, the family was like, did our mom talk to you? And I was like, yeah, she did. They were like, she has really advanced Alzheimer's and she has not had a coherent conversation for several years. And she had had this brief moment of clarity at the bedside and was able to be there in that moment. And I think that was really meaningful for her and for that family to be able to know that, she was aware of what was going on and kind of say her goodbyes in that way. That particular situation almost ended my nursing career. It was just so sad, mm -hmm. but it was also a really meaningful thing that gave me a lot of passion for being there. It It's those moments that really humanize what we do in medicine. I think in any job you can end up, kind of in this like alpha state where you show up and do the things you do every single day and, you know, clock in, clock out kind of mentality. And when you're in these more delicate situations and you're able to reconnect um, and find those moments that might be really tragic and really sad, but they're also what, you know, brings us to work.
it, it just really shows what we can do for people. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I, I had tears in my eyes just listening to that story and just imagining you in that situation and the family members in that situation. It's, it's hard. It's more difficult than anybody could imagine seeing those interactions over and over again, mm -hmm. wanting to save everybody and not being able yeah. to. Yeah. I think you brought up another really important point is I think we all need to have conversations with our loved ones about what we want. Sometimes yes, fill when, out your advanced directives. <laughs> yeah. By the time it's needed, sometimes it's too late and people don't know what you want and it really yeah. is what the patient wants. And I've had those conversations with my parents and I know my father, if there's, you know, a single percentage, you know, that one in a million chance he wants to be kept alive, he's going to take that chance. And I know my mom doesn't want any, you know, heroic efforts. If it doesn't look like she's going to make it, she just wants to let let it happen. And mm -hmm. my dad was talking about it. He says, I don't know if I can fulfill your wishes, you know, talking to my mom is like, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, you're not, you're not choosing anything in that moment. You are allowing her to have her choice. It's, it's kind of the ultimate sign of respect and love to let your loved one make their own choices and to not yeah. dictate what they, what, what you would want or how you would want it to go, but to really understand what they want and to take yourself out of it and say, this is what they want. It's that ultimate act of love to stand by, even if you disagree and to let somebody pass away that made that choice. Or on the flip side for my dad, I know if he has this rare cancer and I watch him take his third chemo drug that has no chance of success, that's going to be really hard for me to sit by and watch that. But I, I just have to stand back and say, that's his wish. That's what he wants. He wants to do that. That's, that's his choice, not mine. So as people talk to their loved ones and hear their wishes, don't be judgmental. You know, mm -hmm. find out why, dig in, and then ultimately you have that opportunity or hopefully you never do. But if you do, you have the opportunity to really show love and trust by letting things play out the way they want them to. I think another thing I recommend to people pretty frequently is if you have the opportunity where you have a family member who, you know, is maybe a brother or sister, somebody in the family that's um, not your spouse or the person you're married to, I think it's a pretty compassionate thing to um, appoint them as your power of attorney so that the if your you know wishes don't exactly align with your spouse's that because a lot of times when you're looking at your loved one in the bed and they're they're taking those final breaths, it's hard to say, yeah, even though this is what they wanted, this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's compassionate to allow somebody else in the family member, to, somebody else in your family to fulfill your wishes and not have to put that weight on um, your you know, next of kin or your yeah. spouse or somebody who mm -hmm. is right there with you all the time. Yeah, that's a great thought. Great suggestion. Dan, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing these stories with us. I appreciate what you do. Uh, all the nurses, all the support staff, all the people that are there at the bedside all the time. You matter more than anybody will ever know. Thanks. It was fun talking with you. Thanks, Dan. 
Hi, this is Dr. Dave. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please rate, review, and share this episode so that we can continue to get you more stories in the future.